from WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Hey, thanks for tuning in. The topic of today's episode is easily the most serious and urgent issue that we've talked about on this program so far, but it's also the most complicated to solve. It's the opioid epidemic, and it is ravaging our Catskills community. If you've never struggled with addiction yourself, and you're not intimately close with someone who has, you might be aware of the opioid crisis to the same extent that I have been for most of my life. You know it's a problem, you know there are some people in the area who do drugs, you know there are some people who overdose sometimes, and you know that not everyone survives an overdose. It's around, but it's not up close. Might be an issue in your town, but it's not an issue in your proverbial backyard. So it's not generally at the forefront of your day-to-day concerns. If you're like me, and that's how you've been approaching opioids for the most part, I'm hoping that this episode will be a wake-up call. We're going to speak to three different folks about this issue today, each with far too much experience dealing with the opioid epidemic here in Sullivan County, and each with a unique perspective on the issue. But before we get into that, I think it's worth diving into a little bit of background on this. First, I want to talk about exactly what opioids are and how they work, because there's interesting chemical stuff happening in your brain that explains why we as humans tend to struggle so much with opioids. So first of all, we need to talk about a chemical called dopamine, which is naturally produced in all of us. When you eat ice cream or see someone you are deeply in love with or accomplish an important task, that satisfied, happy, excited feeling we get is thanks to dopamine. And what's actually happening in our brain in those moments is that you have these dopamine receptors. So think of them in the shape of tiny jigsaw puzzle pieces sticking out in your brain. The dopamine chemical in your body is like another puzzle piece that fits perfectly into that receptor piece. When dopamine clicks into place on that receptor, it gives you a tiny bit of that happy feeling, as if it's our brain chemicals saying, hey, good job, that thing that just happened was really nice, let's go find more of that. And there are millions of these dopamine receptors in your brain. So when you have a good experience, there's this biochemical reaction that happens in your brain that tells your brain to squirt out a little bit of dopamine. And the better that experience is, the more dopamine we produce so our brains can accurately determine how pleasurable our experiences are, and as a result, how much we want them to happen again. And that makes sense on an evolutionary level. I mean, in order to survive, we need to eat food, for example. So our brains are wired to make the experience of eating food pleasurable. It's similar with finding an attractive mate so we can eventually reproduce and keep the species going. And this is where opioids come in. When opioid molecules enter our brains, they trigger that biochemical reaction that makes dopamine. So it gives us that, hey, good job, that feels nice feeling on a chemical level. It's essentially fooling our brains. 
and that can work as a powerful painkiller by replacing the pain sensation with that kind of dopamine high. And that sounds like it could be pretty addicting in and of itself, because we're wired to keep seeking out things that cause our brains to produce dopamine. But it gets worse. Using heavy-duty opioids regularly causes our brains to produce so much dopamine that our brains react by building more dopamine receptors in order to handle all of that dopamine. But that means that when the opioids wear off, suddenly there are way more receptors not receiving dopamine than we're used to. And so that intense lack of dopamine makes us feel terrible. And normal things like eating ice cream or seeing someone we love just don't produce enough dopamine naturally to bind to all of those extra receptors that you now have. So we end up feeling unsatisfied with the things that used to make us feel great. And of course, the only thing that causes us to make enough dopamine to fill all those extra receptors is opioids, which in turn makes even more receptors. And from there, it's a downward spiral. So I know that there's a lot to take in here, but I think that the neurochemical side of things explains right off the bat why opioid overdoses happen. It's not a matter of people being irresponsible and illogical. In fact, according to the brain of someone who has gotten addicted to opioids, overdosing seems completely logical. It might be the only thing that makes their brain feel some semblance of normal. But of course, it can also kill them. And that is just one of the reasons that tackling this issue is so difficult, because in our brains, opioid addiction functions a lot like a disease rather than a criminal error of sorts. But we've spent the better part of modern history treating addiction like a crime. And it's only recently that we're starting to change our policies to better reflect the science on this issue. So the other thing I want to mention here is that the opioid epidemic is bad here in Sullivan County. In fact, it is uniquely bad in Sullivan County. In 2017, the average rate of opioid overdose deaths across New York State, excluding New York City, was 19.8 per 100,000 people. In our neighboring counties, we saw rates similar to the state average. So in Orange County, it was 20.6 per 100,000 people, so just slightly above the state average. In Ulster County, it was somewhat higher at 25.1 per 100,000 people. In Delaware County, it was a little lower than state average at 15.4 per 100,000 people. Here in Sullivan County, the opioid overdose death rate in 2017 was 38.6 per 100,000 people. That is twice the state average, again, excluding New York City. And unfortunately, it hasn't gotten better since then. In 2019, the average rate of opioid overdose deaths across New York State, excluding New York City, had gone down to 15.0 statewide from 19.8 in 2017, which is great, but in Sullivan County, it went up. The 2019 rate of opioid overdose deaths in Sullivan County was 40.1, almost three times the state average. Since then, early data that has started to emerge since the pandemic started shows a spike in opioid overdoses and deaths in Sullivan County, although this increase also looks like it was felt across much of rural America. That said, it's also worth pointing out that when we talk about the rate per 100,000 people in Sullivan County, the actual number of opioid overdose deaths is lower because we don't have 100,000 residents in Sullivan County. We have about 75,000 residents. 
meaning that the actual number of people who died from opioid overdoses in 2019 is closer to 30. But no matter how you slice it, it's way too many people. The stats are worse when we look at overdose rates among young people. In 2017, the opioid overdose death rate in people ages 18 to 44 across all of New York State, excluding New York City, was 37.5. In Sullivan County, it was 81.3. Now, you don't have to memorize all of these numbers, but the point here is that this is bad and it is getting worse and it is in our backyard. That said, my first question is, what is the deal with Sullivan County? And how did the opioid epidemic get so bad here? I worked on a detox unit. We used to have a full-on like 20-bed detox unit mm. at Catskill Regional. And it was at that time people were injecting heroin at that point in time. And what was happening was there was an increase. Of course, we remember, you know, the HIV epidemic. In, 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 you know, not only in New York State, but all around the country. And a lot of it was about sharing needles. And when we discovered that's where the transmission was happening. That's Aileen Gunther, the New York State Assembly member representing the 100th District, which includes most of Sullivan County, as well as the Middletown area of Orange County. She spent decades working as a nurse at the Catskill Regional Medical Center in Harris, New York, before becoming our state representative. Did you have a moment when you were working as a nurse or was there a moment when it hit you that this is it has become a really serious problem locally right here in Sullivan County? Yes. So I'll connect my dots. So we had the highest incidence of HIV at, out of, you know, at like percentage than New York City. Hmm. There was tons and tons of cases. And some, of course, is a sexual transmission, but a lot of this transmission happened because of drugs and the sharing of needles. So, yeah, I mean, it was frightening when you see people that are passing away from ODs or passing away from using a contaminated needle, or you're seeing somebody with tremendous ulcers on their arms, their legs, their feet from injection. So, yeah, you know, I, I don't remember a lot about people snorting heroin in those days. It was more of a, um, uh, and they, they more injected it. I didn't hear a lot about snorting it. And the one thing that's different from, from then till now is, you know, we had Daytop Village that was there, that we had inpatient care for people with addiction problems. Uh, we had, we had, all kinds of facilities all over the state of New York. But because I guess they felt it wasn't um, cost effective that even though that people are dying, it wasn't cost effective, there wasn't a lot of money to be made, that we now, it's very difficult to get an inpatient bed. And you know, addiction is more than addicted to a substance, it's also a mental, you know, that you need some psychological and psychiatric kind of uh, assistance to try to, you know, get this person in a place where they can move forward in their life productively. I, I'm curious how that experience when you were working as a nurse has impacted your efforts on in this 
subject area as a legislator and and it has it has that you've been doing i'll tell you one of my my biggest pet peeves you know oxy and percocet and percodan and we see the amount of money that pharmaceutical companies are making for the sale of these drugs and you know they're making profits that are quite unbelievable and i think it's time that they're mandated to put some money back in the treatment of addiction in our country because you know i don't know right now what's happening but they say that people are more depressed than ever that people are drinking more and they're abusing their drugs more and so we have pharmaceutical commercials all over the place you can't open a your cell phone and you'll find something on there so uh, somebody has to make sure that there's investment in education regarding the harm of addiction due to you know uh the 40 pills that the doc gives you it shouldn't be 40 pills it shouldn't be and i think that that the pharmaceutical companies have a liability that they should help with uh, addiction i think that we need more beds heads on beds to treat addiction and we're just not doing it because of it's not lucrative and these pharmaceutical companies should be able to help get some heads on beds because you know you can treat a person you know for 3 days and uh you know through the withdrawal period but then there's two sides to it there's a psychological and the physical side and you got to deal with both and are we doing it and i think we put a lot of money into a lot of things and if we don't start putting some money into things like healthcare and mental health is part of healthcare addiction is part of healthcare you know uh then things are not going it's not going to be a brighter world we have to put our money in places like that and in upstate new york you know no transportation you know in our area there's very few and far between na meetings you know narcotics anonymous meetings and a lot of times believe it or not you know they have a lot of aa meetings but the two you know there's a little bit there's a difference there people do go to aa meetings but there's few and far between na meetings i know a gentleman who lived in i think calicoon told me he had to walk across a bridge and you know he walked miles and hitchhiked to try to get to his meetings So I mean it, there's a problem and again the inpatient stays are few and far between. You know people sometimes need as much as 4 to 6 months. They really do because it's not just a physical addiction it's also you know there's a psychological addiction. So why is it so much worse in Sullivan County than even just our neighboring counties? Again I think it's poverty and there's this sense of you know there's not a gym open and if there is a gym open people can't afford it you know that's why we sent started the rec center in Monticello but this year it's closed again we were able to start that and we had a lot of wrap around services and place to go till 8:00 or 8:00 o'clock at night so that kids would be safe so i you know i think and i think that we need to spend more time talking about it with our youth um it's just i i think sometimes victims of poverty i mean when things look so desperate you, you don't want to feel that way so you self medicate either something on the street or an antidepressant and you know you want you know that your friend says it makes them feel better and it's just like it happens that's how addiction happens and we, you know it also runs in families we also know that
it also there's a hereditary kind of component to it. And it sounds like there's a lack of resources, and uh, maybe that is a signifier that there's just a lack of funding for the the resources and services needed for people struggling with addiction up here. So, I mean, how much of the this funding can come from something like the state legislature versus how much do we rely on private investment for, for something like this? I mean, in my, in our community in parts of Orange County, private investment, I mean, you know, we're closing a lot of the services this year with the budget or the governor was closing services that were for kids that got in trouble and, Mm -hmm. you know, they were trying to stabilize them, you know, we're seeing that happen. You know, and, you know, the investment in people should be a priority rather than, I mean, there's all this money. It goes for capital programs. It goes for, you know, I think infrastructure is important for jobs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But human life, I think, is more important. I really do. And, you know, are we investing the most that we can? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, you know, we're we're treating people for overdoses. I talked to Albie Bachman, who has, you know, uh, ambulance service, and they're out all the time using Narcan. So that means people are using, they Narcan, they wake them up, and then what happens? They go back. But it's not like that when it happens that there's not that person there to try to grab them and say, like, this is a moment, and this is a moment where, you know, obviously when you almost lose your life, you're frightened, you know that it's a risk. And at that moment, you're vulnerable. And that's the moment you have to attack with what can we do to change the trajectory of your life? So what has been done around here on a, on a structural well, level? We, have in, a ta- in we definitely have a task force. We do have a task force uh, that we created. Um, right now, you know, a lot of COVID has kind of put up things in, um, but I know that part of my um, my folks here, Rachel and so forth, we were um, helping with Marty and different people to try to create a task force. We did try to create the after school program in Monticello in an area where we know that there's not very much to do and there are pockets of, you know, you know, real poverty. It, it's just terrible. It's just terrible. But, you know, again, I think that we should go back to the old days where there's inpatient stays. I think that, you know, we need more NA meetings in the area. Um, We need more um, social workers. I think that, you know, we often put them in in buildings, walls, Mm -hmm. but we need more social workers out on the street. And in our schools, we have no social workers. You know, we used to have, you know, a psychologist in the school, but we need those kinds of things in these schools. The nurse is important and social workers are important to have in there. You know, a lot of places like in Buffalo, they do have wraparound services in the schools, but they kind of pick and choose the areas where they are. But all kids need that help. Whether you come from a wealthy school district, it doesn't mean that you don't need the same kind of um, education. And it needs to start very early. You know, I mean, you know, the old saying, you know, in my generation was, that, you know, don't talk about it, don't talk about it. Well, now we know that not talking about it wasn't the right idea that we have to talk about it and talk about how it impacts one's life. And, you know, public service announcements are really, really important. So I think education is the most important thing that we can do. And I think that both the federal and the state um, 
government has to uh, put money instead of like when we talk about a capital project, building a bridge or a road. This is a really big capital project. Really, mm. it is. Um, it is. It is our our capital is our children because they will be the ones that will be driving driving the car or the nation and New York State. They, they'll be the ones moving us forward. And that is capital for New York State. If we keep our kids healthy and this generation healthy, we will be successful. But without that, without keeping our kids and young people healthy, we will not be successful and we won't, you know, create a better world for a generation after you. So it's your responsibility and it's our responsibility to educate and stop this from happening. So we all have a part to play in this drama. One of the things that Assemblywoman Gunther brought up several times in my conversation with her was that there are simply not enough inpatient treatment programs to help people get on the road to recovery from opioid addiction, whether it's heroin, fentanyl, prescription medication, or anything else. And not only are there not enough beds for the number of people who need them, but there is an undeniable access problem too. All of our treatment and recovery facilities are in the less rural eastern side of the county. If you're struggling with addiction in western Sullivan County, it can be 30 miles or more to the closest treatment center. And it's even worse in other rural places across America. That said, there are still a few inpatient treatment centers in Sullivan County. One of them, called the Dynamic Youth Community, specifically works with young people. And while many of their residents do struggle with opioid addiction, they accept young people who are going through any type of substance addiction. I'm Jennifer Reinhardt. I'm the director of Dynamic Youth Community. We are a um, long-term residential treatment program for young adults and adolescents, um, usually about the age of 16 to about 25, um, we deal with. And the majority of the population we deal with have opiate uh, addiction. We have a continuum of services. So after they finish residential, um, they go to outpatient. Um, if it's too far from the outpatient for them to go, they go to our community residence in addition to the outpatient. So we, we try to go with somebody throughout uh, their treatment history. So like, you know, um, it goes from residential to intensive outpatient to non-intensive outpatient. And then we kind of let them go and they're kind of independent at that point with some support that we have. So um, we try to hit all those milestones with that person so that, you know, we could get a better result. And you guys have a facility in Brooklyn and in Fallsburg, is that right? Yes, we have uh, our residential is in Fallsburg, and oh. uh, in Brooklyn we have our outpatient and our community residence. I see. So, you know, we we're we're 
brainstorming because, you know, some, some people that we get from the Catskills, you know, it's very important to get out of where you're used to being. So, mm. uh, you know, for the kids in the city, it's very important for them to get away from their old friends and everything else and going to the country. So, you know, we were kind of joking and uh, saying maybe we'll do the same thing with our community residents in the city for the people that are from upstate and get them out of, you know, the area to where they have all their old friends and stuff like that. So, you know, we, we keep on working with it um, as much as we can. And unfortunately, after COVID, they started to finally get the numbers. And um, they we attended a meeting that the overdose rates prior to and post-COVID results showed that the first quarter of the pandemic alone showed the highest number of overdoses from the time that they started uh, keeping records. So, wow. you know, after COVID is finished, you know, I think we're going to, when the smoke is, you know, settling, we're going to have big issues. Do you have any thoughts on why that is that overdose rates jumped up so much? Ah, uh, people were stuck in the house, you know, you, you got mental health problems that were going away. And then um, people were afraid to go into treatment, you know, uh, what had happened was we made a, a small dormitory into a, a quarantine dorm so that we could start to let people in um, safely. So we would quarantine them for a little bit of time, get them tested, and then bring them into, you know, the population. But um, people were, you know, not going into treatment. It was how could they get into treatment? So many programs weren't accepting people. People kind of felt, you know, a little, what's the point, you know, just stay on the street type of thing. Hmm. nobody was taking people because COVID. Do a lot of overdoses go undetected if it's the sort of thing where someone has a friend or a group with them who is also doing some opioid together and someone overdoses, uh, they're, you know, maybe the friends are able to you know, re revive them or something and the person doesn't end up becoming part of the statistic of overdoses is, are, yeah. do you know if there's many incidents of that? Uh, I can, I can tell you many incidences of that. Um, you know, a lot, there was a lot of Narcan given out, mm. you know, especially during COVID um, anybody that was leaving the program, we were giving Narcan kids too, because, you know, okay, you're, you're leaving, but you know, here, here's this, you know, hopefully uh, it might save your life. So, you know, if, if those people aren't handing in uh, old Narcan kits or trying to re up on that Narcan kit, all those numbers are not being uh, tallied. Um, people are being, are reviving each other. That's not being tallied. You know, they're afraid to, you know, go to hospitals or they don't want to go to hospitals. Yeah. So there's so many uh, overdoses that are not being counted. Could you talk a little bit about what Narcan is and what it does exactly? Um, it, it helps. Um, it brings somebody out of uh, DOD. Um, it kind of uh, counteracts the opioid and it blocks those, um, those places where the opioids are going to. Um, and what happens is it'll bring them back or make them go into immediate withdrawal. And that's probably why you get the nasty person or the person that's very angry because they're waking up and they're already withdrawing, um, which is why the first thing that they want to do is go get more heroin, which, you know, a normal person is looking at you saying, you know, how could you want to do this? You know, the last thing that that person that just OD'd remembers was that was a wonderful feeling I just had. And then they went to sleep. It's yeah. unfortunately the people that are watching them or the, the ambulance drivers and all that stuff, they're the ones that are getting traumatized because of it. 
um, the person that's ODing doesn't even remember it. And the only thing that they remember coming out of is now I'm sick and I need more drugs to uh, make me feel better. So, so receiving Narcan is an extremely unpleasant experience. Yes. Yes. For somebody that's opiate addicted. Yes. So if someone were to try to make the argument that maybe we shouldn't be giving out all this Narcan to addicts and their circles because it encourages them to overdose, that wouldn't really hold much water because most people would know that having to get Narcan is awful. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, I don't listen, the person is going to be using these drugs, whether they get Narcan or not. You know, that's a horrible thing. You know, I have a whole house full of kids and they're kids. They're young people that are alive because of Narcan. I've got kids that have been Narcan five, six times. And, you know, um, actually there was we had a letter campaign and we had some of the kids write to um, ambulance workers and thank them um, because, you know, that's the thankless job. They don't see, they're only seeing the bad stories. They're not seeing the good stories. So they're seeing the person that they went three, four times to, to go revive them. And they're, you know, kind of feeling like, what's the point? So we had a bunch of our kids, you know, write them letters to say, you know, this is me. And, and I've been Narcan seven times and thank you because the seventh time worked and I'm clean now, 10 months, 11 months. Hmm. So um, and we thought it was very important for some of these ambulance drivers to hear that too. That must feel really gratifying to hear from from someone that you saved a little while ago. Yeah, I'm curious how changing the subject a little bit, how the youth center is funded. Is it like a 501c3 nonprofit that gets donations? Is it private funding? Does it get state or federal funding? We get state funded. Um, we also, you know, are, you know, not for profit and, you know, we get donations. Um, and um, when somebody is entering our facility, we sign them up for um, social services or HRA, depending on where you're at. Hmm. Um, so they can get Medicaid and, you know, they can get housing and stuff like that paid for. Um, and we also have a sliding fee scale. So there's a lot of people that don't qualify for, let's say, the Medicaid. Um, insurance, you know, they've maxed out their insurance. That's not good. Um, so we do a sliding fee scale and we do take into consideration, you know, people's bills and how much they make. And, you know, we, we never think that, you know, I, 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 it's horrible to hear some of parents speaking about the hundreds of thousands of dollars that they spent trying to get their child, um, alive and clean and, um, didn't work and they end up here. So, you know, we don't want to be that. And, you know, we've taken people by law. I mean, ethically you should, but by law, you're supposed to take people into treatment, even though they don't have the ability to pay. So, you know, let's get that out there to everybody else because, you know, sometimes people don't know their rights also. Do you feel that opioid addiction specifically is disproportionately affecting young people? Um. No, I, I think it's an equal opportunity employer. <laughs> um, it, it's, you know, we have um, young people, older people, poor people. Um, I will say, you know, during this epidemic of the opioid addiction, we've seen people, I mean, 14-year-olds shooting heroin, which, you know, usually you got your 14-year-old smoking marijuana, drinking beer. We have very young people that started shooting heroin right 
right from the get-go. So, um, you know, that, that makes it different. I also wonder if you have any knowledge about why the opioid problem is uniquely bad in Sullivan County compared to, say, our surrounding counties. I know Ulster County had done a really big um, fight on the opioid epidemic. So, you know, there was a lot of people, their hands in the pot, you know, trying to offer some help. I think having qualified people that know knowledge of the various treatment that you can get somebody in, that's a big one. Um, It's a very poor county um, and there's not a lot of things to do. And just add COVID to that, there was nothing to do. Um, So there's not many things that we're giving to, I, I'm going to speak for young people because that's, you know, really what I work with. Um, there's not a lot of things out there for the young people to be involved in and, and you know, keep track of um, to get their attention so that you could get them off the streets. Um, schools were closed at that. Um, so no schools, no sports, uh, especially during this pandemic that went on. It, it's got to be horrible for some people. And then you already have an addiction problem. You know, um, unfortunately, the drug dealer, you know, he was always open. (laughs) He was open for business even during the pandemic. Hmm. So would you say that the, you know, the things that are leading people to try opioids and to become addicted to opioids, it's a lack of opportunity. Would you say that's the biggest one? What, What other factors have you seen that are influencing this the most? It's opportunity. Um, you know, listen, in Solomon County, unless you have a parent or somebody that's driving you from point A to point B, you know, you really are, you know, stuck to your own devices. Mm. And um, since it's been, you know, here in Solomon County for some time, it's just going to keep on growing because uh, boredom is devil's playground. So if you were a uh, benevolent dictator, let's say, and you could kind of wave your hand and allocate any amount of funding to anything to help stop or at least uh, stem the tide of uh, the opioid epidemic? What would you do? Where would you dedicate your your millions of dollars that you've been handed? Well, it'd definitely be treatment because it's a problem already. And then it would be prevention and education. Um, you know, we've been fighting because uh, we have the um, opioid uh, settlement happening. And it was, you know, these companies now have to pay you know, all these millions of dollars or billions of dollars because of the mess that was made. And we're fighting for that. We were cleaning up the mess. So, you know, that should go into treatment a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been really fighting to allocate some of that money so that we could continue to serve the population that are already addicted. So yeah, it would be definitely treatment and then it would be prevention and education. Do you have any insight into effective prevention of Addiction. I mean, obviously, better transportation and better infrastructure and more jobs and whatnot. But I guess I'm I'm thinking more specific things that can be done to help young people from turning to this in the first place. We had our kids go to the school, um, speak to um, actually the administrators, and we let them access any questions that they wanted to. And some of that was those questions. And, you know, what they said, or what the kids told them is, you know, we went to DARE. Um, I graduated DARE. I was, you know, the top of my class. People didn't speak to me early enough, um, very bluntly. Younger kids, you, you try to, I don't know, change the story a little bit, not say 
directly what exactly it is. And you don't do that until you're getting into middle school and high school. Middle school and high school, they're already using. So I think you got to be very direct in, in, a, in a way to these younger kids because they're learning it anyway. They're learning it at home with brothers and sisters that are doing it. So we, we really think that these young kids are not listening or we're trying to keep their innocence and they, it's not there. So I, I think we got to do some direct teaching on what this is. You know, you don't miss something you've never tried. Um, the other thing we're finding, and we're finding out based on our drug tests, we have one person that used to take Xanax and um, she was under the impression that's what she was taking. When we, we took her urine, um, it was Xanax and fentanyl. So oh now God. this isn't the person that was not um, an opioid addict. She was a benzo addict, but now has an opioid um, addiction because she was taking it from the same person, which was lacing it with fentanyl. So, wow. you know, the drug dealers are getting very creative. They're, they're doing it in marijuana. They're doing it in cocaine. And what they're doing is they're getting some future customers because here you got this opiate that's in there. And that's going to keep you coming back. And that's going to give you that little taste. And um, they're, they're getting customers for life. other perspective it felt important to hear from today is that of someone who is at the middle of the opioid epidemic conversation. Stas Borowski went to my high school, and he got addicted to heroin when he was still a teenager, and he's certainly not alone in that. I had friends who died from overdosing before they turned 20. Stas not only survived and got treatment though, he now helps other folks overcome their addiction as well when he's not busy working on perfecting his fly fishing technique. So it started really just experimenting at a young age, um, basically just being in the wrong crowd of people and uh, starting just with smoking weed, smoking marijuana. And it led me to... Uh, when I smoked, it made me forget about my past. It made me forget about things that I didn't want to believe were, that happened in my life. And so, uh, and it made me feel like I was part of something, you know, being with people that smoked and that I found somebody I could, people that I could be with, mm -hmm. it made me feel part of something. And so it started with just that and then slowly just experimenting throughout parties in high school and eventually end up me trying to, uh, prescription pills, which uh, I didn't know at the time what I got myself into being an addict because I have me as a me as an, a recovering addict, I have a lot of addictive personalities, addictive traits. Hmm. And uh, it's something that I became addicted to not even known until it was too late until realizing I had a problem. But it took years of me using prescription pills before I realized I had a problem. To me, it was just, there's nothing really, you know what I mean? I'm young, I'm going to live life while I can. Yeah. There's, you know what I mean? 
So it started just by basically experimenting and just basically you can say partying, I guess. And when I became addicted and uh, the pills weren't enough and it got, became very expensive because on the streets, prescription pills are a lot of money. Mm. And it became hard to maintain my habit. And eventually, uh, you know, somebody said, yo, why don't you try heroin? It does the same thing. And uh, it's a lot cheaper. In my mind, I always thought, I'm never going to be one of those people. I was never going to be a heroin addict. I was never going to be someone who was going to be addicted to it. And when I tried it, I just didn't realize what it was going to take me in life. Do you remember, like, kind of a specific moment where it hit you that, like, you know, I'm actually really struggling with this and maybe I need to get help? When I was using heroin, it was almost, it was like every day that I felt that I had a problem because I could see the way the things that I had to do to maintain my habit, hmm. my addiction. What I what I believe in and what I truly truly believe in is that somebody has to hit rock bottom to understand they have a problem to want to change. Hmm. And nobody's gonna enter recovery and be successful until they want it. You like you can't be forced into it. It, can't, it has to be something voluntary. It has to come from that person. It has to come from the addict themselves. And so for me, it just was one day in particular where I just felt tired. I felt I didn't want to do it no more. I wasn't. I didn't care for the lifestyle no more. And I wanted to change. And that was the last day I ever got high. I ever used. To truly be sober and to be happy with the life that you're living in and to... I guess you can say make the process um, work. It has to come from the addict. It can't come from nobody else. Nobody can be forced into it. If somebody's forced into it and is doing it out of, is doing it for somebody else, or is doing it because they're mandated to do it, or something like that, yeah. Then a lot of times I've I've seen the process doesn't always work. What works for me, what's helped me in my process, what helped me get clean, might not work for the next person. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely something that is an everyday thing, and it's with me the rest of my life. Hmm. And that's something that I know and I understand, and uh, I believe everybody should understand it and look at it that way. So do you mind if I ask, what is your process, and, and what has been working for you? So now my process is continue going to my meetings, and uh, a big thing for me is not only listening to other people's experiences and what they go through, but also sharing my experiences to help myself. And not only that, it can help the next person that that is in their process. I know you were in like a recovery group for a while. Uh, yes. And did you meet people along the way who ended up relapsing at some point? Yeah. Um, I was in a group, it was, it's a pretty, it was a pretty intense group. It, hmm. it wasn't, they practice same, the same steps as the same 12 steps as NA or AA. Hmm. I, but I was in a inpatient group, which was a requirement of three months. And then they would, uh, if you wanted to, you can stay as long as you want it. And it was a totally free group. It was hundred percent free. So 
everybody that was part of this association and part of this group was a drug addict in recovery. Wow. We didn't have any counselors or anybody like that. Everybody from the president of the group um, until the newest guy were all recovering drug addicts. And so, uh, yeah, so I went into the group and, and, and like I said, it was a, a, a three-month requirement. And so what I've noticed in my process, because I lived inside this group for two and a half years. Hmm. I, I stayed past my three months and I, uh, I stayed to help others. And eventually I was actually even the treasurer of, of one of the groups. Because um, we have the group that I was in, there was multiple group homes in the United States. Gotcha. Uh, so I started in one in Staten Island. There's actually one right here in Sullivan County right now. They just opened it a few years ago. But I started in the one in Staten Island to get me out of my location. Um, I stayed there for about a year and a half. And then I went down to Florida and I actually helped them open one of their new groups that they just opened, which is in Tampa. And so when I left the group, um, I was actually the treasurer of the group. What I've noticed being in the group for uh, two and a half years is that I've seen a lot of people go in and out of the group. And I don't know how a lot of them did after the group. Um, but I have seen people with time, with months, years, relapse. It can mm. happen to anyone. Yeah. And that's something that addicts can't forget is is the moment that they forget that they're in recovery and that they have a problem. It's a bad, it's not something somebody wants to do. It's not something an addict wants to do is forget where they came from and what they went through and their uh, addiction. That's why I remain going to meetings because I don't want to forget. I, I can't forget. And in going to the meetings now, it sounds like you've, you've kind of developed somewhat of a, uh, like a leadership role over the last few years among other people that are struggling with addiction as well. Not only do I help people like newer guys, like people that just got into the group, but they help me as well because uh, every day I reflect on, usually at nights I reflect on my day and uh, to see what I did good, what I did wrong. And uh, so when I go to these meetings and I hear newer members with a couple months or a year, they might say something that I reflect with that make me remember a certain moment in my life and it, it, it will help me, you know what I mean? And then I yeah. can get up and share the experience, something of like what they shared. And, uh, and that's one way we help each other is really the experiences is listening to people of less time and more time, sobriety time, I should say, um, share their experiences is something that is something that helps me. Like you were saying, do like, as a leadership part, I'm, I'm proof that uh, it's possible. So a lot of people that go into recovery at the beginning, they don't think, because addiction's strong. It's a very strong, a lot of people might disagree with me, but is I believe it's a disease. Yeah. Um, a lot of people might not believe it's true, but it is a disease. And uh, it's one of the only diseases in the world that doesn't have a cure. So our cure is meetings. And so me going back to my meetings, but still living at home and going to work, I give guys that just enter their process hope and faith that it is possible. Because uh, when I first entered the group, I was just like a lot of new guys. I didn't think it was possible. Um, when I was out using drugs, 
I didn't think I could go one day without using drugs. And now they, I, I go into this group and they're asking me to stop using drugs for three months. It seems, that seems like a lot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and so in my process, I saw people just like I am now. I saw people that were going to school and coming back into their meetings and going to work and coming back into their meetings. And that was something that helped me believe and have faith that it is possible that I can stop using drugs and I can live happily and I could, I can be purposeful in life. Yeah, definitely. This is a little bit of a tangent, but you mentioned that you kind of started down the road toward being addicted to some pretty hard drugs through just weed and alcohol. And I'm curious now that uh, weed was just recently legalized in New York state, if you have thoughts on that, on, on it being legal now. Uh, not really, because there's people in life that are going to be able to go to the bar and have a couple of drinks and then go home to their families. There's people in life that are going to be able to socially hang out with other people and smoke marijuana or even by themselves and still go to work and pay bills and be responsible. Be, I guess you can say a manageable user. And me as an addict... And I've noticed that a lot of people is we're unmanageable in our addictions and our addiction is so strong that we forget about basically all morals of life. Hmm. Um, we forget about family, uh, friends, uh, important things like being responsible, paying bills, going to work on time, things like that. that we, do, we don't care about, you know what I mean? So I don't really have any say on that. Um, if, Hey, more power to you. If you're able to go smoke some marijuana on the weekends and still wake up Monday and go to work, no problems, you know, that's on you. But everyone's different. I also wanted to ask, I very much remember in health class uh, in high school, you know, at some point there's a unit on, on like alcohol and drugs and whatever. And pretty much what... What the the line that you get, which I'm assuming is what most kids across the U.S. here in health class is like, hey, don't do drugs, and that and that's that's kind of like the the extent of the knowledge that you get in you know like a school setting about drugs, and and maybe they'll say like these are different types of drugs, they're all bad, and that's that. That's the end of the day. Um, if if you got to be in charge of pretty much setting the curriculum for health classes on, on this topic, what would you want young people who are 14, 15, 16 years old to know? Really? Like one of the things that I could tell to anyone that's younger than me then is that to really just listen to your elders, like listen to your teachers, listen to your parents because, uh, a lot of kids, I believe nowadays, grow up with this mindset that when their parents tell them something and they don't like it, that that their parents are against them or their teachers are against them. Mm. And the reality of it is, is it's not that. It's just that they don't want to see it in the big picture. You know, they just want kids. I feel like nowadays live in the moment. Yeah. And uh, so they hear things that they don't want to hear, and they automatically shut down. And they think, they think, oh, you're against me. Um, I'm not going to listen to you. You know what I mean? 
And yeah. like the whole health class thing, um, really when they say like, don't do drugs, don't do drugs because it can, like if I could say anything, it could really ruin your life. You know, it could destroy your life completely. Like, I feel like I'm restarting. Like, like me, I'm 20, about to be 26 years old. And I feel like I'm where I should have been when I was 19 or 20, you know, because hmm. my addiction just set me back. So, yeah, if I could, I would just say if your parents tell you don't do drugs and your teacher tell you don't do drugs, don't do drugs. You know what I mean? Like, there's a reason they're telling you not to do it. Don't take it. And I feel like a lot of kids, like, nowadays, especially with, like like you said, like, marijuana is becoming illegal. And, and I feel like marijuana is, like, a very, like, a much more social thing to do, even at a young age. It's just that. I just don't think kids realize where it could lead them. You know what I mean? Yeah. If I knew what I knew now at 15 or 16 years old, I would have never, I probably would have never experimented with other mm. drugs. I probably would never experimented to begin with. I was just like a lot of kids are nowadays. I had a, just a negative attitude towards people that are older than me. Um, mostly like parents and teachers and stuff like that. I had a very negative attitude towards them. And I had this type, I had this mindset growing up as in high school or school growing up that it's my life. You can't tell me how to live it, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Last question for you. And then I'll let you go. I'm, I'm curious, the inpatient recovery group where, where you were living for a while, is that funded through state or federal tax dollars? What we would do is we actually had our own print shop where we made t-shirts. Let me start with this before I say that it was the fundraising that is that when we did this, when we would go out with, we'd go out with t-shirts and we would go out with flyers. We'd go out with hundreds of flyers Hmm. and we would approach people and say, listen, ma'am, we're trying to do something positive in the community. Um, We're handing out information about our recovery group that helps teenagers and adults who struggle with addiction. Um, and we're totally free nonprofit, so we fundraise with T-shirts. Um, the main goal of that was to find new people. Hmm. Um, so, like the guys that have been, because there's guys that are a part of this group that have been part of it for over thirty years, and they say that as long as you pass the message um, with honesty and from your heart, with the intentions to find somebody new, everything else will happen after that. We never try to force anybody into donate into us or to help us keep our doors open we just believe that the group that i was in we just believe that if you're out there looking for somebody new because that's how i got to the group that's how everybody gets to the group is through a flyer through a friend that got the flyer you know what i mean yeah uh so i just want to say that before i get any further into the how we keep our doors open so we would go out on the streets with these flyers and we tell people what we're doing and we would uh, we would fundraise with T-shirts that we made, and uh, and that's how, believe it or not, a lot of people don't believe it, but that's how we kept our doors open. And then, uh, like I said, like when we'd go out on out into towns and and we'd go to local businesses and we would explain to the businesses what we're doing. A lot of times, we got a lot of donations of food and clothes and stuff like that, just because a lot of towns that don't like like for instance. Sullivan County. Some of the smaller towns that have had people affected by it 
they really grasp and like the idea of what we do. And so they'll, a lot of people help, you know, a lot of people will help donate men's clothing or donate soap and like that stuff's expensive at the end of the day. You go, go try it, buy it, go look, see how much toothpaste is in the store right now. Yeah. <laughs> but that kind of stuff adds yeah. up when you have 40 or 50 guys living in a house, you know, it's, it's not, that stuff's not cheap. So when basically most of our fundraising would go towards like the bigger bills, you know what I mean? Like insurance and, and stuff like that. Like, but a, a lot of the, the smaller stuff, we would, a lot of it, we got donated to us. All of this definitely gives us a lot to think about. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty upset that the treatment program that Stas has been a part of for a few years keeps its doors open through t-shirt sales. I mean, more power to them, of course, for their solid fundraising efforts, but I can't help feeling like selling t-shirts shouldn't be the difference between getting help and eventually dying of an overdose. I get that the opioid epidemic isn't glamorous. And for a legislator to stake political capital on investing millions of dollars into making this issue better doesn't make for handsome publicity stunts, but people are dying. And it's worth mentioning that Assemblywoman Aileen Gunther has actually put the work in on this. She's been speaking about this for decades, and she has passed meaningful legislation to improve treatment for people struggling with addiction. But as we've seen in the statistics from the last few years, she cannot fix this on her own. And realistically, no single bill or nonprofit can make the opioid epidemic go away. Like we heard today, we need a range of better treatment and recovery centers. We need a curriculum overhaul in our schools. We need buy-in from pharmaceutical companies. We need better public transportation, and the list goes on. But none of that can happen if we are not getting creative and courageous about opioids. I hope that this past year during the pandemic is the worst that it gets. I'd love to see it be a short-lived spike in the overdose statistics for our community. But that is not guaranteed, and it will not be the case if we don't seriously ramp up state and local efforts to tackle this problem. And that all starts with changing the narrative about addiction. Like we talked about in the beginning of this episode, it really does function as a disease in our brains. And if we are willing to get serious about an illness like coronavirus, there is no reason for us not to about opioids. Like Aileen said, let's do it for our kids. That's our show for today. Thank you to Assemblywoman Aileen Gunther, to Jennifer Reinhardt and Stas Borowski for speaking about this issue today. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Leif Johansson. This is Close to Home. And you are listening to WJFF Radio Catskill. Stay safe and have a great week.